It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This is Access Atlanta. Your weekly look at what's fun, entertaining, and educational in and around Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Stay tuned after the featured conversation for a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week both online and in print. But first, we're going to hear from Atlanta artist Craig Drennan. Drennan has created a sophisticated contemporary art gallery highlighting artists from Atlanta and beyond called the End Project Space in a growing nexus of art studio spaces and art spaces just south of Atlanta. Drennan, who is involved in several arts organizations in Atlanta and teaches at Georgia State University, has used his gallery space to bring high caliber art to Atlanta and support the local art economy. As a well-known figure on the Atlanta art scene, Drennan combines intellectual chops with an incredible sense of humor and a generosity rooted in his West Virginia upbringing, where hard work, an obsession with books, and parents who nurtured his creativity were formative. Felicia Feaster is here to bring us her conversation with Drennan. Welcome, Felicia. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. Um, this sounds like a, a really great project. Uh, it's, it, artists can use all the help they can get these days, and it's great to have a space like this. It really is. And especially, you know, I've talked about this phenomenon previously with you about artist run spaces and just how great they are when an artist is in control because they really understand the best ways to highlight the work of the artist um, on exhibition. They have this you know, sympathy and empathy for their experience being artists themselves. And that's certainly what Craig Drennan brings to his space. It's funny, he describes it in our conversation as kind of punk rock. And, you know, he, and I also, you know, in my story about this current exhibition of Namwon Choi's um, work at the End Project Space, I describe it as being on a desolate strip in South Atlanta of warehouses and things, but it's actually a very, you know, smart and beautifully designed contemporary art space. It's not like you're walking into a, you know, drab basement uh, to see a rock show. It's a, it's a very sophisticated space. And I think Craig has done a great job of bringing that level of polish to the space. Yeah. Well, artists have always sort of been pioneers at, at finding places that you know, generally costs them less because they have less to work with sometimes. So they, they often move into places and uh, they're the pioneers in, in certain areas of town. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, I live in the south part of Atlanta, so I say bring it on. The more artist spaces, the more studios. There are quite a few artists who have, including Craig, who have studio spaces in it, where the end project space is located. So, you know, you have the chance if you go visit the end project space to also see some working artists at work. And yeah, I'm just so excited for this explosion um, of art on the south side of Atlanta because, you know, prices are getting so high you know, in Atlanta that, as you say, they have to seek out new spaces. And I think this is really fertile ground. So it's exciting for me. Well, is there anything else we should know before we hear from Craig Drennan? You know, I just think, Craig, um, this is the first conversation I've had with him, official conversation interview. And it was fun for me because I feel like I learned a little bit more about his background. And I also learned about his artwork and how these, you know, he's done artwork himself that really draws from high culture like Shakespeare and then more low or middle brow culture like this Supergirl movie he references in a lot of his art. And it was so interesting to see elements of autobiography in those projects that he's done. And just to engage with him, he's such a he's such a funny guy. I, in the interview, compare him to um, uh, two comedians like David Letterman and Conan O'Brien, not just because he's funny, but he just has this kind of salt of the earth, good guy, Americana vibe going on, which I really appreciate. It's not often you get someone who's so like conceptually minded, but also just like a really down to earth, cool guy. So it was fun to have this conversation with him. Well, uh, I thank you for bringing us this conversation, Felicia. Thank you. And let's hear from Craig Drennan. Hi, this is Felicia Feaster with Access Atlanta, and I am here with Atlanta-based artist Craig Drennan. Uh, Craig, you also operate the End Project Space, which is a pretty unique uh, gallery on the Atlanta art landscape. It's in what I guess is an old warehouse on a kind of desolate strip of industrial buildings in East Point. So it's facing the railroad tracks and it's close to the Lakewood Marta station and a number of artists have studios in the building. How, how would you describe the vibe of the End Project Space? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for the invite. And, you know, I've always uh, wanted to start up uh, some sort of project space where I could show work. And uh, the vibe in Southwest Atlanta, especially when I started in, in January 2019, like it was a little desolate. It was industrial. Uh, you know, it was the kind of vibe I remember basically every city I've ever moved to. I end up in that kind of neighborhood. So it felt very familiar to me. And, um, you know, it, it's been great. And now there are some other artists coming in and, and so on, you know, which is fine, of course. But uh, no, it, it's, it's been good. Artists always know where to find it. So there are a lot of different kinds of independent galleries in Atlanta. How would you describe the kind of work that people can see at the end? What kind of distinguishes what you're showing versus other spaces? I think that's a good question because uh, I did have something in mind. You know, when I uh, used to live and work in New York City uh, in in much of the '90s, uh, what I would what I noticed is that some of the most uh, fun places were, you know, artist-run spaces. And I'm thinking uh, not only of like Pierogi and Momenta and these other Williamsburg spots, but I'm thinking of Four Walls was a great one that Mike Ballou used to run and uh, 
you know, uh, sauce was another one. So anyway, so I had, I had it in my head that, uh, you know, that the artists, you know, can, can lead and especially if, uh, you know, if, if the rest of the gallery world seems like maybe it's, uh, struggling or lagging or, you know, doesn't have that, uh, adrenaline that we'd hoped for, then the artists can usually step up. So the art that I, uh, uh, I'm interested in showing and the, the artists that are always attracted to me are sort of the outliers, I have to say, you know, so we've had, um, you know, for most people, it's their first solo show in Atlanta. I think our youngest person has been 24. The oldest has been 62. Uh, still in both cases, their first, first solo show in Atlanta. Uh, but I tell people, I mean, we're not a, and we're absolutely not a commercial space. We're, and I don't, I don't think calling us nonprofit hammers that home enough. We're like unprofit. <laughs> like you'll lose money. Uh, <laughs> but, we, but I don't take any commissions, you know, uh, and it's, if the artists do sell something, it's all on them, but or it's all for them. But what I tell people, and I'm remembering an old line from the film uh, Babette's Feast, you know, where at the end of the film, Babette says, uh, all any artist wants is a chance to do their very best. And so I like giving artists free reign of the space to do the thing that nobody else will let them do or that, you know, nobody asks them to do or, or you know, it's full permissiveness, you know. And again, it, we're, we're not like other galleries. And, um, you know, we're more like that, uh, that little uh, basement where the punk rock show can happen. You know, and it'll, and nobody will be turned away and it'll always, uh, always be a good time. I'm amazed at how different every single show has been. We've had 17 shows. The shows that, that's up now is number 17. All of them have been different. It's, it's amazing. And the way I've described your exhibition space, the way you've just described it, it sounds kind of scruffy, but it's actually not. This is a very refined, polished looking exhibition space, I think. I mean, it looks like any other sort of white cube gallery space. It's just, it just happens to be within this kind of, you know, unfinished overall warehouse type of space, but it's, it's polished. Well, I feel like you just described me, Felicia, uh, scrapping <laughs> on the outside, but uh, actually quite polished on the inside. I think you also are very polished. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, it, it photographs very well, I will say that. Uh, and the current show that's up is extremely polished, but some you know, other shows have been a little more uh, rough and tumble, you know, uh, where you weren't quite sure what was happening or, you know, how the art was being held up on the wall or, or whatever. So, uh, uh, and the next show is definitely going to be uh, uh, a different, a different tone for sure. We're going to see some forest magic. Ooh, well, let's first talk about the show that's currently up. It's called Dot, Dot, Dot. It features a Savannah artist, Namwon Choi, and it's on view. Her work is on view through December 30th. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about that show? And, and then if you want to segue into what's coming up next, I'd love to hear what you have uh, on offer. Well, you know, we've had uh, we've had a busy year because I try. I mean, there were a lot of cancellations and postponements due to the pandemic, especially early pandemic. And so uh, there was work that just stayed in the gallery a long time, you know, for a big chunk of, uh, you know, 2020 and into 2021. 
But then when, you know, the vaccine came out and things started to ease a little bit, then I, I shortened the exhibition time just to get everybody, give everybody their spot. You know, just everybody who had been promised a show could, could get their show. So uh, if it seems like it's been super active this year, like that's why. Normally, I'd like to do six shows a year and do two-month runs. And the previous show was a collaborative team of, uh, um, you know, two artists who were making these awnings, uh, painting as awning. And that was eccentric and, and unexpected for people. And I think unexpectedly beautiful when the people who came and saw the show. Uh, and this one, uh, to, to get to actually answer your question, Namwon Choi, um, her show had been originally uh, scheduled to happen back in uh, 2020. And so this was a, you know, a, a rescheduled show for, uh, for, for Choi. Uh, and she wanted to do some things she had never done before. She wanted to put some uh, uh, wooden spheres in conjunction with the painting that she had imagined would be there, but just had never been able to show them that way yet. And uh, she wanted to paint some of the gallery walls. She wanted to paint some of the floor in a particular way uh, to showcase these painted, uh, a painted sphere that's in the show. So there's one sculptural work, which is a solid uh, plaster or hydrocal sphere that's been painted. So in all these pieces, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to, say anything that that Troy hasn't said in her in her statement and press release already but a lot of it is about uh the highway the American highway especially uh, Troy grew up in uh, Korea uh, but moved to Georgia uh, several years back and you know you notice the long horizontal paintings that sort of mimic like a long stretch of highway and within those pieces, you see one point perspective, like looking down the road, uh, which is actually uh, I-16 in most cases, which is a road that uh, she travels often because she, she travels back and forth from Savannah to, uh, to, Mar to Atlanta and Marietta, actually, uh, to see her kids. So that endless stretch of road is sort of where the dot, dot, dot comes from. It goes on forever and ever, dot, 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 you know, like, like the the ellipse in grammar, like there, there's more there that's, that has been excluded. Uh, but they're all, everything is executed by hand, which that's been the main surprise. Like we've got a lot of visitors into the show. The opening was good, but we've had a steady stream of folks coming to see the show. And a lot of them said they came to see just how they were made. Like that was part of their curiosity. And then when they saw that everything was handmade, then they were, you know, fairly astonished. But um, they're, I, I think they're great paintings. And, uh, you know, all types of work, you know, are, have been shown at the end and will be shown at the end. But, you know, it always warms my heart a little when, uh, you know, we see some great painting in town. So what's, what's the next show that people can look forward to coming up? You said it's, it involves forests. Well, it's uh, it's a, an artist named Ian Herring who's going to go go in January. To, he'll have the January February slot, and uh, a lot of his work involves him going out into forests and spending time and gathering mud and materials and shooting videos of these uh, performances. I guess you would call them like these sort of forest events that he that he uh, performs. And so uh, he's going to use a lot of the mud from 
uh, from sight that he's gathered and actually paint with mud on the walls and the floors. And there'll be video monitors. Uh, so I'm, I don't know for sure, but I suspect there's going to be a lot of sticks, branches, like that kind of thing. So it's going to be, um, what's the opposite of a hot mess? It'll be a cool mess. <laughs> It'll be a cool, well-organized, uh, you know, mess of a show. But uh, again, every show is interesting. The one after that, scheduled for March and April, um, uh, Sean uh, Campbell is going to have a show and he's going to make a uh, slightly scaled down version of an actual uh, cowboy bar, like a, an actual saloon with saloon doors. And then that'll take us in the summer, which will be another collaborative team that's going to do uh, primarily a sound uh, exhibition, like installation with few objects, but a lot of sound. So again, everything is, everything is, uh, you know, uh, possible and permitted and available. And I'm always, I'm always surprised. As, well, as so, you, oh no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I know to expect the unexpected at the end, but it, <laughs> I think people can get that sense from, from your descriptions of these shows coming up. Um, it's, it's all, each show is different from the next and that's kind of the fun and surprise of the end. It is. And this is where, uh, you know, this is what I felt was lacking in a, in a way, you know, in, in the art world. And, and not that like a commercial gallery scene can't encompass everything and an institutional uh, venue can't encompass everything. I understand that. But just for me, like being on ground, going to artist studios, going to exhibitions, I just saw so much interesting work being made, like really interesting work that nobody was paying attention to. And so that's, that's honestly, that's a big part of why I decided to, to, you know, open up the space when I did was I said, there's just so much happening here that's being ignored and uh, it's, it's really good and people should see it. And every single show has fulfilled that like that. We haven't had a dud of a show yet. I mean, I, I know I'm, my opinion is biased, but uh mm -hmm. No duds. They've they've either been great or really great, and and I I have to you know you've seen my space so I have to walk past the end to get back to my own studio space, and it's been great having like high quality work uh, and just that positive energy of somebody like so happy to have you know their their big project installed uh, for the first time in in many cases so. Uh, so for me, it's great to see these shows like every, you know, every day when I go into the studio. So on one level, also, it feels very greedy of me to do that because I automatically get to populate the, the front part of my studio space with, uh, you know, these these shows. So I, I came across something, you know, really interesting that you said in an interview. I think personally, I have found that a lot of people are really intimidated by contemporary art and you know the experience of walking into an art gallery can be intimidating to people but i like the way you described you had work up at a show at a savannah gallery laney contemporary this is your own work your own artwork yeah and you said my great hope is that people experience the works the way they might experience an interesting stranger. And I thought that was a nice way to put it. Don't go into a gallery with this heady contemporary art thinking, I don't get it. I don't know where this artist is coming from. Go in like you see this really 
intriguing person at a cocktail party and you're dying to find out what is their story? No, for sure. I mean, that was, uh, I forgot I said that, but that, uh, that sounded great. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for, uh, thanks for pulling that back up. But I, um, I, I genuinely believe that. And, you know, I, I sometimes hear, uh, cause I teach art, art classes and occasionally I'll hear some uh, students saying that they don't feel like they want to go into galleries because, because of what you just said. Uh, and on some level, I'm sort of wondering who started this like crazy rumor that like galleries, uh, don't want people to come or something because I, I admire galleries. I mean, they, they're free. Like you can walk in you know, almost every day of the year and see new things professionally displayed completely free. And so that's what I always tell the students. I was like, well, you know, you, you know, even with student discounts, like museums are going to charge you a little in most cases, not the Atlantic Contemporary, God bless them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it, it's like a gallery is a, a place to see something for free. Like, it's great. Just go, go look at it. And the staff will be delighted that you came. But, but yes, I know that in, in some other, you know, cities, I mean, and I think all throughout the Southeast, I found gallery uh, staff to be like extremely friendly and very welcoming and happy to see anybody, happy to talk or not talk about the work, like whatever people want. So, uh, so I'm always, I'm always eager, you know, to have people go to galleries, but, but I, I, I know what you're saying. Like sometimes it feels, you know, if, if you're like, I don't walk into a lot of jewelry stores. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't know a lot about jewelry, you know, and somebody could say, Hey, this is uh, this diamond uh, is 14 carats. It has no inclusions. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. They could be lying. And so, uh, you know, it just takes a minute, but I, I encourage people just to, to get in the habit of going to the galleries and uh, you know, and, and yes, hopefully there's something interesting there. You know, and something maybe maybe you do have to reach a little bit. Maybe you have to, uh, you know, maybe uh, the the gallery, um, maybe they're not like telling you every single thing right when you walk in the door. You got to like sit with it or linger with it or think about it for, for a minute. And I think all that's fine. Again, just as you would with a person. Like if you meet a person and they immediately start telling you everything in their whole life, I mean, uh, that's that's not so great. <laughs> And, and I usually sit beside that person on a plane, it seems like. <laughs> but, you well, know, we've all been there. Yeah, they got to hold back a little, you know, like leave a little something <laughs> for later. People with the least exceptional stories who want to tell you the most about them. Um, <laughs> so you've worn a lot of different hats in the art world. You know, you're an artist, you're a critic, you're a teacher, you're a gallerist now you're you've been the dean of an art college do you think that occupying these different roles within the art world has been advantageous for you I mean has it been helpful in the sense of making you better able to understand the inner machinations of the art world has it just been fun like what what's the experience of wearing all those different hats well you know I I think that's interesting and because one of the things I, uh, one of the questions I like to ask, I go to a lot of artist talks and artist lectures. And at the end, they have some kind of, you know, time for Q&A. And one of the questions I will often ask is, uh, what's the, what kind of 
day jobs have you had? What are the most what are the most interesting or least interesting day jobs? And you know, in many cases, that leads to some interesting anecdotes. But even more interesting are the people that kind of dodge that question because they've never had a job. You know, mm. because they haven't had to. And you know, that's that's the world they were born into. Like that wasn't any decision they made necessarily, but I find it funny how, when people dodge that question, uh, but to circle back around for me personally, you know, I grew up in um, central West Virginia in a working class community and, you know, everybody had multiple jobs. Like I didn't know very many people that even had one, just one job. Like you'd have your one job, then, a, then an evening job, a weekend job. You had different things that you had to do just to survive. And so in that way, I've just been like everybody else I've known. Uh, on the other hand, and I'm, I know I'm going to sound like, uh, like I'm 400 years old right now. but I mean, exactly 400, because I'm going to talk about Chaucer. You know? <laughs> With somebody like, uh, like, like the old kind of literary model of like, you know, having lots of jobs. It's just how you learn about the world you know, and how you get experiences, all different types of people, all different, you know, uh, foods, religions, ages, like all different, like cultural practices and, and holidays and so forth. And I think that's really important. It's, it's been important in my life to experience all these things. Um, in terms of like the art world in general, I mean, it, I'm always amazed. I mean, I, when I lived in New York, I did a lot of art handling jobs and I worked for, you know, galleries. I, I worked for uh, the Guggenheim Museum. I worked uh, as the education coordinator for DIA, you know, now DIA Beacon. Back then it was just the DIA Center for the Arts. And I'm always amazed uh, by how much work, just the volume of work that very small staffs perform you know, and they don't always get a pat on the back necessarily for it, but it is a massive amount of work done by a small number of people. I couldn't believe it when I saw how small the staff of some of these places. I mean, I worked, you mentioned I had been the dean at, at Skowhegan mm -hmm. uh, for four years, a, a, a res residency program called the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture. Applications for next summer are now open. Please apply, skowhegan.org. Um, I hope it's an ORG. It might, yeah, it must be. So, uh, so all that has been, again, just super useful of just seeing these different vantage points and seeing, you know, how art is produced, how it circulates, how it's, how the discourse around it, which, which is a big part of what you do here in Atlanta, you know, the, the, the criticism and the discussion of art, uh, the continued relevance of art making, you know, uh, all of that, is interesting and seeing it from all the different points of view. I mean, you do get to understand it a little more, but I mean, the thing I always come away with is just how much work it is, you know, to have like a thriving functioning kind of art world. Uh, I'm not necessarily art marketplace, but, but a world where, you know, there, there are exhibitions, there are people being productive, there, you know, some kind of conversation happening. Um, none of that just happens, you know, it takes, it takes people doing a lot of work and I'm sure that I'm, I'm preaching to the, uh, to the choir, you know, or the choir master, the choir mistress right now. But, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a ton, it's a ton of invisible labor that people don't even realize. This is Felicia Feaster with Access Atlanta. We will be right back. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. 
an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This is Felicia Feaster with Access Atlanta, and we're here with Atlanta-based artist Craig Drennan, who is also the director of the End Project Space in East Point, Atlanta. Well, I guess we should talk about your artwork since you are an artist. You've won a Guggenheim Fellowship. You've shown your work all over the world. You're you're a successful Atlanta-based artist, in my estimation. Um, God bless you, Felicia. <laughs> and, you know, your own artwork, it's pretty heady. It's moved between high culture and low culture. You know, you've done a project about the 1984 movie Supergirl and you've done another um, more current project about Time in of Athens, this kind of lesser known Shakespeare play. I mean, are you interested in, in failed culture, like kind of not great films and not great plays yeah. or overlooked films and overlooked plays? Like, is there, do you think there's an overriding um, theme in these various bodies of work that you've done? Or is there a way you would describe what you do um, to someone? Well, I mean, um, that's, that's very kind of you uh, to say all that and to mention it. Uh, I think that I wouldn't say failed necessarily. Overlooked is probably closer to the mark. Uh, but I, I was drawn to, uh, you know, I was drawn to these doing longer projects because I felt like I, I was never comfortable just sort of doing like one piece at a time or piece by piece or a small series of three or something in the studio, like, like many artists are perfectly comfortable doing that, that just never satisfied me. Like I really wanted something more complicated and I wanted to dig in. And I also wanted something that I didn't completely make up. Like I wanted something that was already in the world. And so I can go to, you know, the, the 84 movie Supergirl or Time of Athens. Like I can go to those spots. The audience comes to that spot and we're both there together. Neither of us are really experts. So to me, like these subjects, these found subjects are like meeting places. And I think, um, in the South, you know, there's a lot of artists working in found objects, collage, assemblage. I think there's something interesting about the interest in, in detritus. Like, how do I, how, how do I gather the detritus of a, you know, uh, you know, of this point in history and then, and then cobble something together with it? I mean, that's interesting. But I'm more interested in found, a found subject rather than a found object, it, which is still overlooked, still left behind. It's just not a thing, not a physical thing. So the, th the subjects that attracted me were ones that were extremely positive and extremely negative simultaneously. And I, I mean, it's taken me a while to kind of unpack this even for myself, you know, because the movie Supergirl, I mean, even, even that title is, is peculiar. 
you know, and when there's a, there's a drop or two of misogyny in it, because she's not a woman, she's still, she's still uh, in the demeaning status of being a child. Yes, she's super. And so you have this weird kind of superpower. And yet when you listen to the film and I, I carefully recorded all of uh, Helen Slater's lines as Supergirl in that movie, she does not have super dialogue. There's a lot of like, I'm sorry. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I'll be out. I'll get out of your way. Like there's a lot of diminutive, really subordinate kind of language. She only has one long speech in the whole movie, the Phantom Zone, by the way. Um, and so any subject that had something really strong and really weak, just welded together was, was super interesting. And probably if I was being hundred percent honest, probably I recognize the capacity for those subjects to provide me uh, opportunity for self-portraiture, you know, and, and coming from West Virginia, which is a very impoverished state, uh, which was, uh, especially when I was there in the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, technologically not up to the, to the rest of America. And so here we are in the United States of America, global superpower. And yet there are places, you know, around where I grew up where people still didn't have, like in 1986, uh, you know, Thriller has been released. You know, Prince has the Purple Rain album. And yet... There, a space shuttle has taken off, but yet there are people without indoor plumbing still in the United mm -hmm. States of America. And so there's something about that that I find interesting, like that condition of, uh, you know, of having just these two things, these two qualities marbled together of, of greatness and not greatness. And for Time of Athens, you know, I, I thought that I would Supergirl was, was interesting to me. And I, I felt in some ways it was a little too close in time. Uh, and a lot of people showed up to my uh, exhibitions expecting uh, like a comic book show. And they were so disappointed. There were some very disappointed young bachelors who came <laughs> to my shows. Uh, so, but I thought Time of Athens, it was even more remote and, and nobody had heard of it, but everybody had heard of Shakespeare and probably Shakespeare is the most powerful name, the strongest signifier in the Western canon, I think. And so I thought I'm gonna take the strongest brand at its weakest moment. And that's, that's my launch pad. Like that's, that's the, the place where I'm gonna to try to launch this project of extreme strength and extreme weakness, both there side by side, hand in hand. And then I try to, uh, you know, think my way out of it, you know, and, and, and paint my way out of it uh, as best I can. That's probably a very lousy explanation, but that was, you know, that's the best I could do here. No, that brings remarkable clarity to your work. I'm so glad that you tied it to yourself. And I'm curious, since you're saying that your work in this way is self-portraiture, what's your superpower and what's that? part of you that feels overlooked? Is it that what you're describing, that upbringing where West Virginia is like this overlooked place within the superpower of America? Like for you, what's the self-portrait part? I think that, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, 
I think that, um, of course, my my faults and shortcomings are uh, are, are numerous, too numerous to mention here. <laughs> we can we can bundle them together uh, later, but but numerous. But I think that um, you know I had, for whatever reason, I I had the capacity to draw really early and and well in life, and I think just as important, I. Uh, learned how to read and I voraciously read constantly. And, you know, my experience just as a kid in West Virginia was actually fine. Like, you know, we ate well, everything would be called organic, I guess, although <laughs> it wasn't called that back then, but we ate well, it was like fresh air exercise. Like there, there so there wasn't anything sort of terrible about it. It was just uh, removed from the rest of American culture in, in many ways and still occupies this funny sort of, uh, you know, uh, ambiguous quality. Like it, when I'm, when I'm up North, they call me rebel. When I'm down in the South, uh, I have been called Yankee. <laughs> like, uh, wow. Okay. And yet West Virginia was, was there and it broke away, uh, with its alliance with, uh, the victorious union army. Uh, which was also called um, the the American U.S. American Military Forces, the actual American Army, uh, and so there there's it's all interesting. It's an interesting braiding together of these different um, again strengths and weaknesses. And I think that um, my strengths were you know I had the ability to to I I would even say concentration was a strength of mine. Like I, I never had any problem concentrating and, and lingering and being determined, focused on one project for great lengths of time, never bothered me at all. Like even as a little kid, never. And so that allowed me to sort of learn how to draw and improve my drawing and have sustained immersion in art making as a very young person. And it also allowed me to uh, just read just everything so much. And it's um, on that front, I encountered greatness, let's say, first in literature, uh, because I, that, I hadn't been to a museum, mm -hmm. like never, never in high school, not one gallery, not one museum. And, and it was well into college before I, in undergrad, before I went to my first museum, uh, the National Gallery of Art in DC. I think I was either a junior or senior in college. Um, and so I first experienced something great, like when I read, uh, like Virginia Woolf or, uh, you know, I was always a Faulkner fan. Like I still think, uh, Sound and the Fury is, is great. Uh, if, if pressed, even though you didn't ask, but if you did ask, <laughs> Hey, Hey, Drennan, what's your, uh, what do you think's the greatest book uh, that you ever read? I probably would easily say, uh, Nabokov's, uh, Pale Fire. I've given it as gifts. I think it's remarkable. I can't believe that one human being was, was gifted enough and smart enough and tender enough to make a book like that. So, 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 so I have sort of, that's why reading became so important. And I, I even, I, I joke with my students. Sometimes I became addicted to it. Like I, I see a library as a great feast and that helped me learn about everything else. And that helped me learn about, you know, the history of art and art making. And it, I learned how to do research and all these types of things. So 
So it wasn't until later that I actually saw like great art in person. And that, that was extremely impactful, but uh, that came later for me. So that I still, my first memories of, of experiencing that, that feeling, that rare feeling of like, this is, I'm in the presence of something incredible. Um, it first happened with a book for sure. That's so interesting. You have now convinced me you are the person I would like to sit next to on an airplane. <laughs> you have good stories. <laughs> I have a few. I have a few for sure. Well, I could see why. Um, so I did a little digging and you, you mentioned you're a teacher. Um, you teach at Georgia State University. Yep. So I couldn't help check, but help but check out your reviews on Rate My Professor. Oh, and no. Yes. I have, yeah. I have never looked at those, so I, okay. I'm well, afraid to know. You you get really good marks. All right. Yeah, most students, uh, I would say all students, describe you as hilarious. Well, that part and is true. <laughs> I have definitely seen evidence of that. You have a very sort of self-effacing kind of a manner, but then a kind of gentle temper temperament that reminds me, I hope you don't mind this comparison, but I, it reminds me a little bit of like a David Letterman or a Conan O'Brien. And I have to say in my over 20 years of writing about art, no one has ever greeted me at a gallery with a cup of hot tea. So kudos to like your mother and your parents for not only encouraging you in some way to be an artist, but in also clearly guiding you in this very generous spirit that you have. And um, so. Well, good. Guess, uh, actually, that was, that was my tea and you actually stole it from me. But whatever. <laughs> I didn't I, believe that. I appreciate um, the, uh, I appreciate the, the, the froth of, of the compliment, but, th but of course, I mean, that's, that's what you do. I mean, I learned that from hanging out with like filmmakers and stuff. Like you got to give, you got to give a little food and coffee or something to the crew, like people coming in, like you, you have to. Well, it was so, a, yes. a nice touch and I can see Good. why your students appreciate you, but what do you get from them? Like what, what makes teaching satisfying to you? Well, you know, it's, um, I've had, a, as, as we've talked about, I've had a lot of different day jobs. Uh, and teaching is a good one. Like, it's a really good one. I've had some day jobs that I didn't care for, uh, and others that I did. I mean, I really liked working in the museums. Um, but at a certain point, there's a, there's a physical toll and it's so deadline driven, you know, when, whenever, you know, that Guggenheim opening is, is coming up, if we're, we're a month away from the opening, you really can't have anything else on your schedule. You can't have anything else going on in your life because none of it is more important than having their opening occur as advertised, gliding across the finish line properly with no problems at all. Um, so that is a little stressful uh, in a bit. And I, uh, I'm not like a, a, a super large guy, but I got, uh, I, I got tapped to, uh, you know, to handle a lot of the large sculptures. So I mean, you unload some of those Henry Moores off the truck, <laughs> You know, do that a few times, a few weeks in a row. And I know that there are folks who I, uh, you know, worked with who, who worked way harder on all that than I ever did. But I saw people getting injured. And, you know, the Guggenheim 
very, very recently has had efforts to unionize uh, their crew. But at the time, I mean, you know, whatever, like I was young and kind of resilient. So whatever little bumps and bruises and, and whatever else I, I recovered from. But but I um, I made a decision to go into to teaching like I could have stayed in the in the gallery museum world, you know, and done that and been had had like a you know stayed in New York and had hopefully an interesting life. But I really wanted to see if I could do it. I wanted to see what it was like to try and be a, be a teacher, be a professor. And I thought that I had um, done a few things. I, you know, I had some, some plenty of firsthand experiences, both as a maker and then as someone who's, you know, dropped things off at Rauschenberg Studio and, and whatever. I carried boxes for some very famous artists in my day, <laughs> but, I, but I think that, you know, um, I think like, I believed, you know, once I was sort of easing into my thirties and, and then easing past them, I thought, you know, I had some things to offer and I wanted to just see if I could do it. So I, I very much, uh, I do enjoy teaching. I, I have to say, and I like I like the you know those first semester, you know first year students taking drawing one. Like I actually really like introducing people to the practice. Uh, but I I end up teaching a lot of graduate classes as well, and that that's always really interesting just because uh, the students I deal with have been super interesting. So, but uh, the the main thing, the best thing I get from them is their music playlists. Mm. <laughs> For sure. It can be underrated. Yeah. The, the cutting edge <laughs> of music you've never heard of. See, I, I thought that would get a bigger laugh. I did that long setup just so I could say the only good thing is their playlists. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, like that. Dry. Just sucking them dry. Uh, no, no, it's good. It's, uh, it's, it's terrific. And I think that in the art world, uh, you know, teaching is, is uh, one of the places where one of the one of the increasingly rare places where you have actual intergenerational conversation. And I think it's super important. I mean, it's, it's crucial for everybody involved, like for, for the older artists, the mid career, the, the young student, I think it's really important that everybody hangs out together and talks about the issues of the day and, uh, and how, you know, how to deal with it, how to, you know, the old, uh, as the old saying goes, you know, what you build for yourself is a creative life. What the world gives you back is your, is your creative career. And so talking about how can you build, I think that's a, that's a Stuart Harodner line. I think I want to give him the footnote there. Previous uh, creator at Atlanta contemporary. Yeah. But I think that, um, you know, I think it's it's super like it's crucial. It's crucial that all the parties involved in, in production and, and like actually communicate with each other. And, uh, you know, because you don't want to just hang out with like people your same age or people like on your street or although my street is very cool. The end Murphy Avenue, Southwest Atlanta. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. I think that that kind of conversation uh, is an enlivening in a very positive way for me and hopefully, you know, for the students as well. 
I think that's so true. American life seems very segregated by age and you're, you're completely right. We need opportunities to learn from someone who's been down that road. And then we have just as much to learn from these students who um, have things beyond their playlist, maybe to, to share perspectives that are completely fresh and new Um, as the mother of a 20 year old. This is something I appreciate. Um, So this is the point in my interview where I would normally ask you, so what are you working on now? But since you seem totally busy and you have your hand in so many things, I will ask you, what are you currently neglecting since you seem to be doing so much in your career? (laughs) Well, uh, that's very funny. Uh, sometimes after an artist talk, people will, somebody will raise their hand and say like, how do you manage, you know, work-life balance? And I, my answer is always like, I don't, like I am, I am not balanced. I am, uh, yeah, uh, imbalanced. Uh, so, uh, I've been very fortunate in, in so many ways that, and one of them is that, uh, you know, I, I won a big award uh, a few years back that, that gave me a block of time to work and it gave me uh, some money that I put down to renovate uh, the studio. I saw where the end is. So the fact that the end exists at all is uh, partially a result of uh, the Guggenheim Foundation. So thank you to them for sure. Um, I do have uh, a big year coming up, hopefully. And I have neglected nearly everything, not my students, you know, I haven't neglected them much, but I do have a show opening in January at Stoveworks in Chattanooga, uh-huh. which is a terrific new venue. And if anybody hasn't been there yet, drop what you're doing and go there because it's really a fantastic space. They have a residency program. I think they're like a full year in on their residency program and they've had some group exhibitions, but the solo exhibitions will start in 2022. Uh, so I have a, a show there, a solo show that I've been working on uh, with the crew there that's been really uh, terrific. Uh, and then in February, I, I feel genuinely honored and, and, and touched that I was asked uh, to have a solo show at Atlantic Contemporary in the smaller of the two main spaces there. And you know the space so well, but when you walk in the door and turn left, the straight back to the left space which is now called Gallery 4. Uh, and that'll, that'll open in February um, 2022. I'm gonna have a show in March at a, at a tiny venue out in the desert outside Los Angeles. Um, and it's called Lazy Eye Gallery. I'm gonna have a show out there in March of next year. Then uh, I'll regroup and uh, get my wits about me during the summer. And then in fall, I'll have a show at Virginia Tech um, up there uh, with it'll be a, a show, uh, two solo shows. I'll be having a show alongside my dear friend, great, great comrade and thinker and painter, Steve Locke, and I will have uh, simultaneous solo shows. And then uh, we'll bring it across the finish line next year with uh, my first solo show in Manhattan. Like I've never had it a solo show in Manhattan and I'll have a solo show at freight and volume at their new Tribeca space. And I'll be pelting everyone with uh, announcements for all these exhibitions as they come. And so uh, I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. 
You will be on airplanes a lot. Going, you know, yeah, but, uh, you know, I've been double vaxxed. I'll be, I'll get my booster soon. I haven't gotten it yet, but I'll get it soon. And then, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, keep my head down, stay busy. And, uh, I'm actually really looking forward to all of this. Well, congratulations out of pandemic. I feel like I'm, you know, breaking out of an egg or something. I'm being hatched. Yeah, I think a lot of artists are in that boat. It's just so exciting to be out in the world. Well, for all of us, but especially for artists who who work so much, you know, in isolation and then having the pandemic on top of it. So where can people find out about your shows at the end? Get your address, find out the the next um, exhibition run. That's good. That, and uh, I will say that uh, Namwon Choi's exhibition dot, dot, dot will be up through the end of December. Uh, the easiest place, I mean, I have a Facebook account for the end. Uh, I'm, I haven't yet done this, but I am adding it to my, my actual personal website. I'll have like a little a drop down list for the end, uh, but I haven't done that yet. That's, that's going to happen uh, in December. Uh, the easiest way and the way that most folks communicate is just on Instagram. Uh, just send a message. You can always go the, the Instagram account for the end. It's just the end project space and everything is there and whatever events are happening. Uh, so we have had some online artist talks and the files are available there. You can, you can listen to the talks if you, if you want, uh, you can see what's coming up. Uh, I should, post pics of the show, the openings, the pieces, and I just try to shine the spotlight as hard as I can directly on the artists, because I'm really thankful that so many great artists have done what I think is like some of their best work here at the End Project Space. Well, thank you so much, Craig, for spending time speaking with us about your work and the work on view at the end. Thank you more. Happy to be here. Happy to do it. <laughs> After Vandal's severely damaged historical markers recognizing Major League Baseball legend Jackie Robinson and Valdosta lynching victim Mary Turner, the Georgia Historical Society will erect replacement markers this week and in late January. The new sign memorializing Turner will be dedicated in a private ceremony on December 10th, about five miles from the site where she was murdered near Valdosta. The new sign honoring Robinson will be dedicated in late January in Grady County at the site of his birthplace along Hadley Ferry Road. A duplicate of that marker will be dedicated about 14 miles away in downtown Cairo, the county seat, on January 28th. Read more about the new markers and the history behind them at AJC.com. Entertainment Weekly compiled a list of every original holiday movie that is set to come out this year on streaming and TV networks, and the number is mind-boggling, 146. And that is likely a low number. The appetite for feel-good romantic films where two people inevitably find some way to kiss by the end has apparently become even more insatiable. There are, of course, the usual suspects of Hallmark and Lifetime, and no shortage of familiar faces who know a regular paycheck when they see one. Check out our list of a few of the new holiday offerings this season on Rodney Ho's radio and TV talk blog. While the holidays are a joyous time filled with family, love, gratitude, merriment, and community, for many it is anything but. Whether it is because of grieving, loneliness, a sense of isolation, or stress, mental health issues are often exacerbated by the holidays. 
Emotions can range from a basic bah humbug to suicidal thoughts. In fact, there's a name for it, Seasonal Affective Disorder, which starts around November and ends in January. As we are in the midst of the holiday season, it is important to know that there are options for people who need help not only getting through the holidays, but hopefully life in general. Find out where to find help and support in our story on surviving holiday depression on AJC.com. Few Atlanta theater artists knew Stephen Sondheim personally, yet the loss felt personal for countless Atlanta actors, directors, and other theater professionals, as is apparent in social media posts and buzz that has spread following the death of the acclaimed songwriter and master of musical theater at age 91 on November 26th. Our partners at Arts ATL ask Atlanta Theater World denizens and a few former Atlantans to allow us to publish their posts or otherwise share their feelings. Find out what they had to say about the late musical theater legend on AJC.com. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.